Peter Yim uh, of the Ontological Forum. Year 2006, and today we have an invited speaker uh, making a presentation on integrating data or ontologies. A look at the ISO 18876 architecture. Uh, our invited speaker is no less than Dr. Matthew West, uh, reference data architect and standards manager of Shell International Petroleum Company Limited from London, UK. Uh, he is the author of ISO 
and the principles are as, apply as much to ontologies as to data models um, uh, when you wish to integrate uh, different ontologies. So, um, without further ado, can we move on to slide two, please? And this looks at the requirements that we set out trying to satisfy when we were developing the standards. We were interested in supporting data integration and sharing. Um, so, this means across a number of computer systems in particular. Um, consolidation of different data sets. So, uh, if you have data in different systems, uh, when you bring it together, how do you know which data refers to the same object? Um, and the integration of different data models or ontologies, um, and the use of different languages. So um, you might have a data modeling language like Express, or a logic language like Common Logic, or OWL, or whatever. Um, and you actually need to take into account when you're mapping between different models the different languages that they may be represented in. Moving on to slide three then. Well, let's just look at what happens um, with integration in the ordinary case. Um, if you have two models, M1 and M2, um, uh, you can create an integration model for those two. Now, I always take this back to uh, the ANSI Spark architecture, which really did this the other way around. They, some of you may recall the, the three schema architecture, um, where you had uh, an internal model, um, an external model, and a conceptual model. Well, the integration model kind of plays the role of the conceptual model, and M1 and M2 um, uh, play, the, play the roles of, of external views that you wish to be able to support. Now, the anti-spark architecture worked from the basis that if you had a model, you can construct a number of views on it. This really turns this, that principle the other way around and says that if you have a number of views, you can construct an integration model that supports those views. And that turns out to be the case. And if you read about information flow, you can even, you can even find a proof of that. Um, but this is how things start. And then if we move on to the next slide, slide four, um, you find you have some other things somewhere, models somewhere that need to be integrated in slide five. Maybe even you want to integrate those um, and something else. And this is how integration tends to progress. Uh, you keep on introducing new integration models to integrate your integration model. Um, this isn't really what you would want to do in an ideal world. So if we move on to slide six, you can see that what you would hope for is that you had a single integration model and that when you added uh, there was a new model that you wanted to add to it it would just mean extending the existing integration model now uh, I need to explain what extending is here um, it means that whatever was in C remains entirely unchanged because if anything in C changes your interfaces to A and B may need to change and that's, that's quite an expensive thing to do so you want to be a model such that if you need to increase its scope to accommodate something new like D, that you only need to add to it. That's, that's a key requirement if you want to be able to do integration efficiently, but not one that's easily met, I have to say. Okay, so moving on to slide seven. Ah, this slide didn't come out well. Um, hmm. 
not on the VNC anyway. This is one you'll need to look at uh, afterwards uh, on the slides that you can download. Well, there's supposed to be... It looks odd on the download slides too. Sorry? It doesn't look good on the download. On the, on, what you should see is one shape inside another. What I'm seeing over the web is, um, is something pink uh, that, uh, that, that looks like, uh, well, misshapen anyway. Um, there's, there's supposed to be one shape just inside another with different colors. Um, and it says that the scope of the model must fit within a context. So um, uh, the context here is the breadth with which the model is constructed. Um, how, how broad can it be? In a sense, it's the upper ontology uh, of whatever your model is. And, and I use that word a little bit loosely, or, or should I say relatively. Um, uh, you, can only, you can only extend your model um, if it's within what your upper ontology can, can cope for. And if your upper ontology isn't really an upper ontology at all, but a middle or lower ontology, you may be quite constrained in terms of what you can add. So if you move on to the next slide, that will presumably not look too good either. No, it doesn't. So here, in principle, we're, we're adding something which is outside uh, the context um, and, and uh, means that you can't fit it into the existing model and you would need to change the existing model in order to be able to accommodate, to increase, you know, in, raise up the uh, the upper ontology to a higher level, so that it is able to incorporate uh, a piece that, that does not fit within what was already there. So let's try the next slide, and I've lost the slide numbers as well. So we're on slide nine now. Ah, well, and this one's supposed to have some jigsaw puzzle pieces in it, showing showing three jigsaw puzzle pieces neatly fitting together. But I just have a green oval here. Um, if you have a, um, a broad enough context, you'll always be able to fit uh, your uh, new pieces of model into it as you develop them, provided you're developing within, the, within that, of course. So this is, this is partly an argument for having an upper ontology um, as, as a part of what you're doing, is that it, it is what enables you to bring together and integrate things from a, a, a wide area. Okay, moving on to slide 10. Okay, this, these ones work, that's good. Um, now, when you're looking at uh, data and databases, um, it's not enough just to have the data models uh, integrated because um, when you're mapping from your external models into your integrating model, um, you create another copy of the data and um, if you look at one dash and two dash, which are both in the same model. What you don't know about those is, is which pieces of data in those two refer to the same object. So you need to consolidate those two so that you get the overview of any object that's in there. So if you look at slide 11, you see you need to consolidate those uh, um, uh, those data sets one dash and two dash into three. Okay, and at that point, you, you have actually done the integration of your data, and you can start using it for whatever purpose uh, if, if you, were, you, you were wanting to uh, achieve with it. So moving on to slide 12. Okay, this, is, this now shows um, what... That was really describing the problem, if you like. Uh, what, we're really, what this slide does is it shows 
Uh, what ISO 18876 uh, ideas does for you in that it presents an integration architecture uh, which says if your solution to the problems is, is around developing integration models that you can integrate data into and then here's your architecture for doing it and then it has um, integration part that's part one and part two is an integration and mapping methodology which actually takes a number of the possible cases for doing integration um, and uh, tells you about how to do that. So moving on to slide 13. So may I clarify a point? Of course. Um, back on slide 11, you were saying that uh, the 1 prime, 2 prime were conjoined in 3 because they referenced the same subject, is that? Well, the, the, the challenge in producing data set 3 is that you, you Okay, let's, let's go back to the beginning on this. Because you, you had um, a data set 1 that conformed to schema A and a data set 2 that conformed to schema B. Um, and these, are, these have some data which are about the same thing. Okay? So the first step is to transform the data in schema A and in schema B into the, the appropriate form for schema C. Now, Schema C is able to hold all that data, but it, it might be in a different format, um, in, a, in a different uh, structure. Um, uh, but now you still have two separate data sets. Um, so you need to link them um, by identifying and merging. You may have, uh, um, an, uh, you may have Pump 103 in data set 1 and Pump 103 in data set 2 with different bits of data about those, those in those two different places. But you actually have to bring those two objects together and produce a merged object that contains the whole information. And that's what data set three would be about. But, uh, that's integrated data set. But the, the key of this merge was the fact that data sets one and data sets two were referenced to the same subject. Is that how you said it? Yeah. If, so, 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 um, Amongst that data, there would be um, uh, some data that was about the same object, yes. Same object. But, in, but from different objects in the very loose sense. So a particular pump, a particular person, a particular city. Or a particular all right. action. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much. But not all the data was in, in either data set one or data set two. So if, if it was all in one, you wouldn't need to do the integration, of course. Right. Okay, thanks. Okay. So if we move on to slide, where were we? I think we've got to 13, 13. haven't we? Okay. Um, so the mapping and integration methodology, what's the requirements here? Um, you need to be able to describe the following processes. Um, how do you extend an integration model to meet the new requirements? You remember that diagram that showed extending a model with a sort of C++ um, selecting a subset of the integration model that satisfies the semantics of a particular external application or model um, and defining the mappings between the selected subset and the structure of the external application model. So if we move on to slide 14 you can see that in, in pictorial form. So the, the pyramid represents the uh, integration model um, and here you have your foundation concepts at the top, some general concepts in the middle, and discipline-specific concepts towards the bottom. Um, and on that front face, those, those are the primitive concepts, and from those you can derive 
any number of other derived concepts which is going back in the in the third dimension. Now, what the uh, rest of the diagram shows is that for a particular application model, there is going to be a subset of the integration model that is that is semantically equivalent to that. It might be expressing things in, in a somewhat different way, but it, but overall it has the same meaning. Um, and that then, you, from that, you need to construct a mapping to your application model, so that you can you ha know that you have something that's equivalent. Okay, moving on to 15. So, specification the transforms between the subsets of the integration model and the external application model includes both structural changes and terminology changes. Slide 16. So, if we have some concepts in our application model, we need to find those concepts or their equivalents, what we would be mapping them to in the integration model. Now, the normal case is that there would be something that wasn't in the integration model already, so that part of this process will usually mean extending your integration model. So, next slide, please. Oh, I've got an hourglass on the, uh, on, the, on the slide number at the moment. I don't know what the slide number is. Um, so, having uh, extended your integration model to IM dash, um, we now have uh, the integration model that we need so that we can incorporate, so we can map back to this application model. So, next slide, please. Can you move the cursor a bit, Peter? Oh, no, these don't have a slide number on them showing. Sorry. That's, that's, uh, Okay, so now from that we can extract the integration model subset, which are those objects that we identified, including the ones that we, we added. And then next slide. And then we do the mapping from that subset back to the application model. And, and again, this mapping is, is non-trivial, um, because the integration model subset may have uh, different format um, structure, um, uh, might even have a different uh, approach. You know, your integration model subset might be four-dimensional, and your application model might be three-dimensional. So the mapping can may be quite uh, quite complex, um, but you know what it is you have to do to have something that's semantically equivalent. Is it, is it even guaranteed to be possible? Um, it is in principle because uh, you. Uh, your models do reflect the world. So as long as you are able to extend your integration model um, to incorporate the, uh, the concept of the application model or, or the things that were equivalent to it. So for instance, if, you're, uh, if your application model is a 3D model um, then, and your integration model is a 4D model, uh, then you'd be adding perhaps some extra 4D objects, but then you'd be doing a mapping from 3D objects to from 4D objects to 3D objects to the equivalent 3D objects, and that's quite possible. We know that's possible. We've done it. We've done that sort of thing. Then I assume you wouldn't choose a let's say 3D model as your integration model when you have a 4D application model. Um, you could, you can do it that way. Um, uh, as far as I understand it, um, uh, th there can be more challenges mapping from 4D to 3D than 3D to 4D, but it is generally possible. 
for, for, for ordinary cases, it's, it's always possible because um, uh, most ordinary things, both 3D and 4D, can do. It, it, it tends to be in special cases where you would you would actually hit some difficulty. But, um, I, I, but I, it's, it's probably best to assume that um, uh, you can achieve if you can achieve satisfactory models of the world in both a 3D model and a 4D model, you can achieve a mapping between them. So, but uh, departing from, let's say, 3D or 4D modeling, then uh, would the uh, requirement be that I mean, one would always use a more expressive representation language in the integration model? Well, you can't do it if you are less expressive. I mean, if you're less expressive, there are some things that you won't be able to map. So uh, that's, and that's always one of the things that pushes you um, with your integration model. It needs to be more general than any of the application models that you are wishing to integrate. But it needs don't to be more expressive than any of the, the application models that you're going to integrate. But so doesn't that? Sorry. Doesn't that drive you to some very baroque integration models? I'm thinking of the case where you're taking data from two different hospitals, yeah. and they're both and they're both recording fever, and they both have, uh, you know, uh, you know, fever, uh, uh, you know, normal, uh, moderate, extreme, but they have different protocols for determining you know, different semantics of, of the terms uh, uh, moderate and extreme, and. Well, the integration model, you know, one, you know, one has to do with a, a fever for, you know, a, a certain well, temperature and a certain number of days. Talking about different things. Um, um, you know, you've got fever one and fever two. Well, you know, fever as defined by hospital A and fever as defined by hospital B, and they're actually not the same. They may have some overlap. Maybe some fever from hospital A's are also fever from hospital B's, um, and and you may or may not be able to determine that if you don't have sufficient information. And it may well be that there isn't sufficient information to determine that. There is no magic here. Okay. There is no magic. If you don't have enough so, information to be able to determine whether things are the same, you can't determine whether things are the same. Okay, but then... So, so you're basically dealing with the case where, where, where the, between data set one and data set two, things are ambiguously, unambiguously the same thing. Um, if, you, if things are not unambiguously the same thing, then there isn't a way of doing integration that makes it unambiguous. Integration itself does not make the ambiguous unambiguous. You can hold the information, you can hold all the information, but it will be ambiguous as to whether it refers to the same thing or not. But as I understand it, the integration model doesn't have to look like the application model as no. long as there's an effective map. It typically will be quite different. Yeah. If you had two different terminologies for temperature ranges defining fever at two hospitals, the integration yeah. model may have... Um, <coughs> numerical ranges of two-tenths of a degree, and each of those hospitals maps into that yeah. um, fixed model, but it wouldn't look, except for the mapping, like either of the application models. No, indeed. And, and if, you had, if you had different overlapping two-degree ranges, 
and, and you had say a, a three degree range, a, 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 say a four degree range of um, you know what was going to be a fever, what was going to be considered a fever, and then there'd be a point where both of them, you know, in some cases it would be unambiguous that this was a fever, but in some other cases because it was in the overlap range it might not be ambiguous and you and you'd be able to say that this might or might not be a fever it was a fever according to them it might or might not be according to these guys okay um, like I said there is absolutely no magic here um, you can only extract the information that is there um, and if the information isn't accurate enough integrating it with other information doesn't make it more accurate we hope at least it makes the ambiguity clearer um, yes, and actually this is, this is usually one of the main things that you find with integration is, I mean, there's, there's some standard stuff I haven't said, you know, if we're talking about a real, real system and you're trying to do integration, um, most people think that what you're doing is uh, doing an integration based on the data model. But that's not true. Um, it depends a lot on how that data model has been used. Um, and what data has been put into the data model because in, in the end it's just a data structure and if the data structure doesn't meet the data requirements people will bend the data structure and misuse it and, and use it for things that it wasn't originally intended for but it's how it's been used that counts and then that's not even all of it as well because quite a lot of stuff never gets into the database you know I mean you might see that there's a, a temperature of 35 and heavens is that Celsius or Fahrenheit uh, well, the guy that put the data in you. So, and that's information that's in people's heads. Um, so, you, when you're doing an integration model, you need to look for the explicit data definition. You need to look for the way that data definition has been used, and in particular how it's been misused. And then you have to pick up what's missing and, and never left people's heads um, in the way that you ask questions about it. And all that's part of this analysis process, which I've just drawn as a, you know, here's here's the bit that's the hard work and, and as far as I know there's, there's no way of doing that automatically that's, that's people thinking that okay? yeah okay next slide then okay uh, now this is about um, what are the elements that you need in order to be able to uh, uh, do the integration um, you need, for instance, uh, on the left we have the integration model. So there's a model specification language for that. Um, uh, now, the, the ones underneath, in, in the case of ontology, can probably all be done as one, although there will be some elements that are, that are different. But in the data model, the, the data model is a part of the structure. Um, and then you have reference data, uh, which in particular, uh, a good deal of which are reference classes, so things like pump, valve, those sorts of things and then you also have reference individuals things like the United States of America um, uh, and uh, company names and people's names and people and things like that those, those would be reference individuals um, of course what, makes, them, what makes them reference individuals rather than just individual okay um, ref this, is, this is mostly relative um, a, a reference individual is, is, in, is just something that you need to refer to. So it's something which is, for the most part, static, relatively slowly changing. So uh, they tend to be um, uh, uh, physical objects rather than activities. So a sales transaction is not a reference individual. 
but a sales transaction will normally refer to reference information like customers and product types and prices. Okay? Thank you. Um, so the application model has the same structure as the integration model, um, but when you're mapping between them, of course the application model might not have the same model specification language um, and uh, might be layered differently. So the integration model might be more abstract. So some of the concepts that are in the model in the application model might actually map to reference classes in the integration model. Reference individuals tend to map to reference individuals. Um, and in between we have the mapping specification. Now here you need a mapping specification language. Um, you need to have the integration model subset which you've pulled out of your integration model. Um, you need to have the constraint specifications because you're, you're, you need to, generally speaking, you are going to be, uh, if you're matching your application model from your integration model, you will need to apply some constraints to the integration model subset whether those constraints would apply in the case of the application model. Um, and you will need to have, for between the integration model subset and the application model, you'll need to have the structure transformation and the terminology transformation, translation, so that you can move from one to the other, move, move across from one to the other. And those are the pieces you need. Now, um, uh, uh, it's also the case that, particularly when the model specification languages are different, you need to do things like tag, um, well, uh, this element in my application model was an entity type and, and this piece was a piece of data and uh, equally the same over in your integration model so you actually need to uh, in your mapping specification and, and your language needs to have the capability to say that is, is to actually and this is, this is part of what the structure transformation is about um, is knowing where to pick things up and where to put them ok slide 21 well now um, I've talked about the principles, the things that you need to do, um, but there's lots of different ways of doing them. And actually the rest of this presentation is just lots of different ways that you can set up doing, an, doing integration of things. Um, both uh, pure integration, which is actually just, just one, one way, and federated type integrations, of which there are uh, a, a significant number of different ways that you can approach it. So um, this just this one is just to show the uh, um, uh, the elements of the diagrams that I'm I'm using to present these different ways of doing integration. So if you see a solid circle or oval, it means that you have a persistent schema. So there is real data in. Let's let's think of it in those terms. That there is data in a database. If you see a uh, a dashed uh, oval, such as in the middle, the constrained subschema, that's a virtual schema, so it might be a file. Um, but equally, if you see that unconstrained subschema in, uh, inside a solid uh, circle, it means that hmm, this is part of, it, of this integrated schema, but it isn't actually held here, it's held somewhere else, and you follow the, you follow the arrows back to see where it comes from. So, in this case, um, <coughs> Uh, we have uh, the, the, the oval in open space in the middle um, has a double-headed arrow to the schema on the left 
and that means that there's a two-way mapping. So um, this is a constrained subschema of something on the, some part of the integrated schema on the left. Um, and that constrained subschema is what matches the unconstrained subschema in 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 the uh, integrated schema on the right. Um, so what it says is that when the inter this integrated schema on the right wants this data in the unconstrained subschema, it actually goes across and picks it up out of the integrated schema on the left because neither of those ovals are actually populated. So what you have is a synchronous uh, communication between those two systems. So that's what this is showing. Does that, does that make sense? Do people understand that? Any questions about that? Because there are lots more of these diagrams now showing different ways of doing that. So if we move on to slide 22, this shows just about the simplest thing you can do. Uh, this, this shows the sort of the pure integrated system. Now a pure integrated system um, has a single persistence store um, and on top of it you construct views which are these constrained subschemas. Um, and these subschemas are just, are just uh, mappings from the uh, from the integrated uh, system um, and indeed those those views as constrained subschemas may be the basis for other constrained subschemas but everything goes back to the one source and it is fully integrated and that is full integration and that's pretty much the only way you can really do full integration um, most of the time uh, and typically you try to do that as much as you can and, and most systems are designed are, are to be uh, an integrated system. You don't have many systems that have multiple databases. Um, and then they support the applications by constructing the views that the applications need um, on top of that integrated database. Okay, next so, slide. So in this diagram 22, the, all the constrained schemas are, are asynchronous, keeping no, their own they're copies? Syn they're synchronous. There's no copying here because they're the ovals are dotted. So it says you go back to the persistence store with the solid line to actually get the data. So it's all done by, by on mapping the, on demand. On the previous slide, the dotted indicated async. Uh, sorry, go back. Um, only the only of the line. So if the line was dotted, so if you go back, if you go forward, uh, all the slides, all the lines are solid. So it's synchronous. Okay, so all, all the transfers are done um, synchronously. If, if one of the double-headed arrows was dotted, that would show asynchronous. But then one of the ovals would have to be solid. Then, then the, dotted, the dotted lines on the ovals mean? Just means that this schema is, is a virtual schema. Um, it's not persistent. So the data is not, is not stored permanently according to the schema. So it's just like an SQL view. The view doesn't hold any data. It's only used to present the data to an application. Mm. Does that make sense? Do ask. This so, so this is Mary McCaffrey. So, for example, at, at the Environmental Protection Agency, we may decide to have a water quality place where all of our integrated system schema, and actually we could hold the data in a warehouse. However, um, what feeds that warehouse could be many different existing sub-schemas from our different programs. Well, Is that right? No, that, no, that, no, that's not right. 
Um, but it's a good example, so let's use the example. So let's say it is your integrated warehouse. Mm-hmm. And actually, these, these constrained schemas, mm-hmm. sub-schemas, are, are uh, uh, the views that, for which it is used to do various different sorts of reporting, for instance. Right. Okay, so, so these are uses of right. integrated that's data, what I mean. rather than sources for the data that's in there. Right. Okay, so the subschemas aren't where the data come from, it's where it's being used. Alright. Now, in, a, in an ordinary integrate, big integrated system like SAP, these might be um, views where data is created, although with SQL you don't normally use views for creation, it, it tends to be a bit tricky. Um, but, but in principle you could. You could be putting your transactions in through a view, and then it gets transformed into the database. Okay, so let's move on to the next one, slide 12. In fact, this just says what I've been saying, so these are just notes for you for later if, if that's interesting. Slide 24. So here's something that's tightly coupled, two tightly coupled systems, and this is the simplest possible case. So here, uh, and it, it almost has to happen by design. So here we have system 1, and a system 2 has been created, and it's been created such that... Um, it has the same data model for a part of its schema, um, but that when it wants that data, it doesn't store it. It goes to system one for that data and calls that data from system uh, from system one and uses it within its system when it needs that data. Um, and it's been designed to be the same same data model for those two parts of the uh, of that of those systems. This is as simple as it can get. Um, and this is, I, I talk about this as being online. You know, uh, and if system one goes down, you can't get at that sub-schema A data from system two. Okay, now if we move on to the next two slides, again, the slide in the middle just says what I've been saying, really. Yeah, so that's sort of wrappering. Um, now here we have uh, the asynchronous way of doing this. Now here, in sub-schema A, we actually have a copy of the data. But any time it gets updated, it's, it's a slave, but any time it gets updated, it comes from uh, sub-schema A in system 1. So sub- system 1 is the master for this data, and system 2 uses it. And again, it's the same data model for that data that's, that's there in both cases. This is as simple as it gets. Uh, now the advantage of this over the previous one, for instance, and just saying, hey look, these are different ways you can do things, and here, if system one falls over, system two can still operate. So you are more robust with this kind of managed data duplication. Okay, and that's probably the main reason for using an asynchronous link. Uh, next slide, 27. Okay, that's the same thing. 28, just the notes. Okay, here's the more likely. This is the more likely situation. Um, here, these two systems were designed independently of each other, so uh, we don't have um, we don't have the benefit of the, uh, of the schemas in parts of the schemas for both these systems matching. So we need to do a mapping. Uh, now here we do a mapping from a part of the system two schema into the sub schema A, which is which exactly matches. Um, uh, a part of uh, the system one schema, but the system one schema doesn't populate that 
it goes back to system 2 for that data. So again, system 2 now is the master for the subschema A data. And anytime system 1 wants to use that data, it calls it from system, for it from system 2. Again, this is online, so if system 2 goes down, system 1 can't access this, uh, system 2 data. Okay, this is a, uh, uh, yeah, so you have, you, you, you are dealing with the live data, but you arguably have an issue with robustness. Okay, let's look at the next one. Again, that should just be, oh yes, this is a step, this is, this is one way of doing point-to-point -point interfaces. It's a form of federation. Um, and of course, I've just shown one interface here, but you can have any number of them between any number of systems. And it, it, it gives you the standard spaghetti um, interfacing. Next slide, 30. Okay, here's the, uh, uh, the asynchronous version of that where we have a copy of the data in both systems. So this is the managed data duplication approach. Um, so it's a bit more robust. If system 2 goes down, system 1 still works. Um, but otherwise, it's much the same. You, 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 of course, you have a slight risk here that if data gets updated in system two and that same data gets used in, in system one, um, uh, it will be the, the, the data from system one for subscheme array may be very slightly, it may be slightly out of date depending on how frequently you do update. So, 30, next slide, 31. Okay. Uh, just some notes there for slide 32. Now we get fancy. Um, here's a messaging system. Now here, we have a central integration model, but it's virtual. Um, and what's happening is that each of the systems are using a common... Um, oh, what's the right word for this? Well, messaging system to uh, move data from one system to another according to a common model within the messaging system itself. So what you have to do from any of these systems is translate into the uh, model of the messaging system, and then the messaging system will forward the data to those systems that use it. Now this shows synchronous messaging, so again, uh, we might have system 3 wanting to use the data from schema B, um, which is sourced from system 1. So when system 3 wants to use that data, it doesn't hold it internally. It goes out to system, through the messaging system, to system 1 to get it. Um, and similarly, you see, you see other examples of that with the schemas A and C as well. Uh, that it's being sourced from one system and provided to other systems. In, in the case of C, it's actually, it's sourced from one system and provided to two other systems through the messaging system. And again, all synchronously, so, uh, none of that data is held in the using system. It's only held in the source system. Okay, and then we move on to, uh, if we look at um, the next one, 34. Now, here we have the asynchronous version of that, where we have a file transfer, and now um, the, the data is held at both ends, so we have the managed data duplication. And again, uh, more robustness, of course, than the previous scheme, um, where if almost any of those systems went down, uh, none of the others would be able to be used. Here, here because you're holding all the data you need locally, um, each of these systems is relatively robust, um, but on the other hand, you have the potential uh, of problems for uh, 
um, delay in getting issues associated with slightly different reference data existing in different systems at different times. Um, now this one is actually uh, pretty much um, a publish and subscribe kind of, uh, can be seen as a publish and subscribe kind of approach to integration. Okay, next slide. Question. I mean, yes, certainly. The representation. Uh, where does this show? I mean, uh, uh, graphically. I mean that that you actually have replicated the the uh, content. Oh, only that. Um, only that. The uh, dotted arrow says that I, I'm doing this asynchronously, so I'm passing a file across. So if if the line is dotted, it means that it has to go to to in the direction of the arrows to where there's a solid circle. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Let's. Uh, now here's a different approach to messaging. Whoops. Yes, no, we did want that one. That's 34. Do you want 36? Um, oh, sorry. No, this this. Uh, yeah, here we go. Now, in the previous, you, you're, the, the previous two were both the same pattern. You did a translation from the system into the messaging system. Now, this uh, and, and that, this turns that round the other way. Here, the messaging system. Um, comes up and fits to the system. So instead of um, uh, the system having to output according to the format of the messaging system, the messaging system um, takes on the mapping process as well, and it provides uh, the mapping to all the systems. So uh, all the systems just output whatever their native form is. Um, and the messaging system is sort of chameleon-like and, and looks the right colour to all the right to all the different systems um, by managing all the mapping centrally. Now, uh, managing the mapping centrally may have some advantages because it means you can have your mapping skills in one place. Um, the disadvantage of that, though, is that um, your mapping skills may be in one place, but uh, it's not the place where the knowledge of the system necessarily is. Well, if it was only three, it probably, you probably would have, but since you probably have hundreds or thousands of systems that you're trying to integrate, um, uh, you aren't really going to have uh, such a simple time of it. So uh, the advantage of the previous uh, approach is that um, each system needed to know about the messaging system and their own system. Um, uh, in order to be able to, to, to make the links into it. Um, so that, that's a, um, a strategic choice that you need to make about how you're going to, how you're going to do things. Um, but again, I'm really just trying to show, look, there are lots of different ways you can do this. And by the way, even by the time I've finished, I'm, I don't believe I've more than scratched the surface um, with, uh, with what you can do here and different approaches you can take. Okay, so next slide. 37, I should just say that, yes. Now this is, now we're getting to the, um, the approaches I prefer personally, and I'm, I'm not going to claim that it's more than a personal preference. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of these. Um, uh, 
here we're looking at a shared database for shared data. So you actually have one place where the shared data is held. This will usually be what I was referring to before as the reference data, so the reference classes and the reference individuals, because that tends to be what binds the different systems together. Um, so uh, here, in this, in this arrangement, um, the systems 1, 2, and 3 uh, have virtual schemas for what is shared, so they're actually getting the data directly from the shared database. Again, this means that if the shared database goes down, none of your systems work. Um, on the other hand, you, are, you know you are using the real data when you use it. If we go on to the next slide, 39 and 40. Here we have the, uh, the asynchronous version of this, where we have uh, managed data duplication. Um, uh, I've now called it an integrating system, but it, 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 again, it's probably your, your reference data system. Um, and now you have uh, uh, mappings of that into the structure of your uh, uh, applications. So your applications can operate independently if, if your integrating system goes down. Um, this is an architecture which you start to see um, being implemented in a number of places. Um, and I note that SAP, amongst others, are uh, implement beginning to look at implementing this kind of kind of structure. And I know of other systems that are, are supporting this kind of approach as well. Uh, by the way, there are a number of these others. I, I talked about um, publish and subscribe. There are a number of approaches for doing publish and subscribe as well. Okay, 41, slide 41. <coughs> Um, and slide 42 and here we are we've, we've reached the end of the, the presentation um, so the ideas architecture describes what is necessary to achieve integration mapping is fundamental to the whole architecture um, and you need you, you need a, a, a one of the things one of the areas where you need a very strong language like uh, first order logic is in the mapping. I don't think that something less than first order logic will do the job for you. Um, and then integration of all shared concepts into the integration model is also critical. And we were talking earlier, that was one of the things we were talking about. Um, had you actually managed to get uh, all that you needed into the integration model in order to disambiguate the data from different sources and things like that? Okay, are there any questions? <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. West. Uh, first of all, my apologies for uh, the mishap on the slides. Oh, no, this is the I, normal life. So. I uploaded the uh, probably corrected version of the slides. Uh, let me see if we can get that to work properly. Uh, we get a chance to go look at slide uh, 7, 8, and 9 again. Mm, that's not looking good from where I see it, but it might be from where you see it. When you down, when you, this is Pat Heineck, when you download the slides, Peter, from the site, actually, uh, and you try to click on one of those, I've tried it a couple times, and it actually, um, actually blows up PowerPoint for some reason. I've been trying to figure it out. If I skip them and, and go around... I had the same experience. Yeah, it, uh, it really messes up PowerPoint for some reason. Okay. 
I have to say those slides are very old, so they were probably used, they were probably developed with, in fact they weren't originally even developed in PowerPoint. Um, so they've been migrated to PowerPoint at some time about, um, ooh, more than 10 years ago. Now, PowerPoint chokes on them um, pretty bad. Okay, uh, thank you for that. I'll, uh, as I said, they work for me, but um, yeah. that's not enough, is it? Um, if you, uh, there's, there's something called, uh, I've written called Developing High Quality Data Models, which you can get off my personal website, which, uh, those slides are included in. The ones that blew up are included in, I think. Mm -hmm. where, where would that site be, Matthew? Uh, if you, if you go back, if you, if you go to the Ontolog page for today, you'll see a link to my personal website. Okay. If you go there and then go to my publications page, okay, now pretty much near the bottom of this page is something called Developing High Quality Data Models. Where are we? Yes, uh, number 49. The variance that you have, uh, this is Pat Heining again, the variance that you demonstrated here in this presentation, um, is there um, another exposition of it besides the PowerPoint where the um, and there are some patterns that are somewhat alike, and uh, but ha but have you put that into some other form, like some narrative or something else? Um, well, there's the uh, um, those diagrams at the end. I'm not sure whether I've ever done anything. Uh, if, if you that, that developing high quality data models is is a PDF file, Peter. So um, uh, that should show okay. Um, the um, I don't think that I've ever written that up in something other than PowerPoint. Dr. West, this is Mary McCaffrey, and first let me compliment you on an absolutely excellent presentation and certainly your contributions to the field. Um, I'm the business side or the business person over at EPA, and I'm not a technologist, um, but provide a lot of translation between the people that have the knowledge in the business and then what we actually need to do. First of all, I absolutely adore the fact that you've done work on the architecture but include the mapping to the applications because that is, at least in the U.S. EPA's experience, a major pain point for us. Absolutely. If I may ask a uh, rather probably naive question, um, when you're uh, talking about the databases, do you interpret the word database to mean both, you know, a structured database, but perhaps also a document management system or enterprise content management system? It, it certainly can do. I mean, you have to understand where the limits are. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, for the, the sorts of things that I'm talking about, when you run out of structure, you run out of something that you can do with it. Mm -hmm. And then my and second second question is, in our enterprise architecture, um, a, a lot of what we've set as a standard, of course, is, you know, um, extraction and load tools, you know. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the people that are more educated um, in this field, the more experts are talking about how brittle that is and, you know, you need much more. Um, our base of, of customers, our business people, are, of course, spoiled by Google and the web, and they simply want to sit down at their machine and ask questions and query databases. Is this the approach, or is this a possible approach to start to get us there in terms of also looking at 
I think all I'm trying to present here is this is the reality of what you have to do and what you have to overcome if you are going to succeed. If you're going to go there, basically. Yeah, um, you you, you yeah, have to be able to do this work. Don't, don't, don't think that it's easy because it isn't, because these are the things you have to do. And doing a, a number of the things that you have to do are not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things that you can do to make life easier for yourself, um, like uh, working with a set of closely aligned models for your for your system. Yes. Um, and having uh, you know common reference data between your systems. Right. I mean, you know, if you have different reference data, you have to map between the reference data. Why make stuff hard, why, why make life hard for yourself? And, and mm-hmm. in fact, uh, in Shell, I, I work in the um, in the master reference data team, which has just been made responsible for all of Shell's data, at least for its downstream business. Um, and you know, for the first time, we're going to have the authority to say we will have, you know, one one uh, one piece of reference data for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that will be uh, uh, for, for centrally driven companies that. That will have been the case, but for companies the size of Shell and, and most government organisations, it's pretty much impossible to achieve that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're having a shot at that right now. And, and my final question um, is, as we re-engineer our systems, you know, there is discussion about aligning on data models, uh, aligning on sort of the the language that we do them in. Um, how realistic is that? Is that a path you go down as, as a senior manager or are people always going to want their way of doing things? Well, uh, the thing that I would say is that you don't get anywhere with integration without having the governance sorted out. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have the governance that says we are going to do it this way, there will indeed be people who say, uh, oh, I don't like it like that, I'd like it like this. And if you're not in a position where you can respond to that by saying, I'm guaranteed to fail. Yeah, this is Pat Heineck. I had a, a question too. Um, this, uh, you mentioned um, the, the similarity to this, to the I think the subject mapping briefing that we have. Uh, is that true? In the, in the fact that you know one one emergent concept is that people don't readily give up their ontologies Indeed. necessarily, and that that's right. Uh, and, that's, and, and, and one of the things I didn't talk about was that um, you know I, I talked about it as if there was only one. Uh, one integration model, um, but, but actually, you know, when you looked at the, so those ones with three circles, each of those big circles w- would be an integration model of some sort, um, uh, and it's just as valid to map between integration models as it is to map application models to integration models. So exactly the same sorts of things can be done. And so when we're talking about mapping between upper ontologies, you do exactly the same thing. It's just that you need to do it for the whole model, through the whole model. So, so the subject mapping idea, a lot of those ideas are very much the same. Then it would be kind of a high-level architecture for this. And this, yeah. you could really call this semantics, semantics-based integration technology. That would be fine. I, I would, I would not argue with that. I might. Oh, okay. <laughs> I might not pick that myself, but um, but it's fine. Yes, that would that that would be a, a good description. Yes, and and. Emphasis on the semantics, rather no, the structure's in there as well, but structural integration is relatively easy. Semantic integration is significantly harder, and it's certainly emphasizing the semantic bit. And, what and one, one point that 
One point that Mary brought out that I think is very interesting, and, I, and I'll, I'll mention the company uh, Digital Harbor, which has been to EPA and a number of other places that Brand Neiman has brought them into a lot of his uh, environments. But they have this idea that beyond structured data, um, there's, there's a lot of, quote, intelligence or other types of things that you really want to put together. In fact, they use a term correlation, not, not like the statistical correlation we think of, but the fact that senior managers integrate uh, uh, large uh, varieties of data to make, this is back to the sort of the old decision support idea, strategic decisions, and they do more than just um, do dumps out of a database or joins or other sorts of things. So I think that world is coming, and maybe it's very much like a semantic web where content gets uh, markup and it can all be pulled into a large broker. But I, I was reminded of the similarities there. Yes. Um, again, the 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 the, uh, the hard yards there are doing the markup, mm-hmm. uh, doing that because that, that markup is is bringing unstructured data into some sort of schema, which is whatever the markup uh, gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, it becomes uh, easier to process. You can, I mean, you know, Google does pretty well, all things considered. Um, uh, but if you want to do things that Google can't do, then you have to do that that kind of extra markup. And there, and there isn't a substitute. Mm-hmm. There isn't a substitute for the hard work that, that needs to go in. I, I've, I've not seen anything that... that no, I think you're right. And, and the key thing is to understand what the cost will be and make sure that, that uh, your... your uh, approaching things in such a way that you, you've got the cost-benefit equation right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Peter Yim here. Along the line that uh, Pat just brought up, uh, the semantic web people like to sort of uh, compare closed systems versus open systems. Uh, and of course, if you're trying to do a system integration one invariably looks at closed systems where you have sort of a deterministic amount of uh, content or uh, schema that you can wrap your arms around, where, whereas when one comes to the web, I mean, it's open-ended and nobody even knows how much is there or, or what is there. Uh, I guess that's where the topic map people came in in the first place. Um, yeah. Well, if you uh, if you look at topic maps, um, uh, my take on topic maps, and, and Jack Parks here, so I'm sure he'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, you you really create an external model so, uh, of of, of uh, what's out there, which points to those places. So you can go to that external model, the topic map. Um, and it links the different places up for you on the web where where things are and where things can be found that you're interested in. Um, and that's uh, and I, that fits well with the, um, the the kind of architecture that I have. It, it, it's uh, uh, one of one of the shared um, one of the shared data approaches. So this is Jack Park. Can yeah. I amplify on that? Please do. Um, did I get that about right? 
Uh, yeah, except I missed a part of it because I was arguing with the the help message on. I was trying to unmute oh, okay. myself, and the and the conference lady kept telling me how to do it, and so I, I missed part of it. But I actually think that from your earlier comments that that you you uh, are on at least the track that that we would hope that you would be on. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right one. We don't know what the right one is, but indeed. Um, well, indeed, I'm not trying to identify a particular track. The, particularly the last, latter part of the presentation was really trying to say how many different tracks there are you can go down. And that's that's so that's what I wanted to amplify on. First, if I may, I'd like to clarify something. You you spoke uh, at slide 11. You spoke about integration. The aim was for semantic equivalence. Yeah. And and so may I ask how you're using the word federation? Oh. Um, for me, federation means that you have uh, a number of different independent systems um, which communicate with each other somehow. Okay, and, and that must be a meaningful communication. Um, that's and I, I'll settle for it being that loose. Uh, I like and it. there are lots of different ways that you can do that. And again, I, in the later slides, I was showing what some of those possibilities were. And I know that, I mean, I cut out as many as I showed from, from what I had from the previous work that I did on this. And even that I knew was only scratching the surface. Well, my comment would be that, that uh, um, the term violent agreement comes to mind here. Okay. Where, where yeah, I'm not surprised. Where, uh, Comfortable, your, but not surprised. Your work precedes uh, that which I'm doing, and and yet it amplifies it so well that it's it's this is very complimentary and very valuable. The thing that I wanted to to to, to say is that we got some clarification through interactions with with people in this group and with uh, a workshop we, we held here at SRI, we got some clarifications on the nature of what it is we're doing versus what it is the AI people are doing. And so let me just, let me just say it this way. Um, the federation that we were talking about when we gave our talk to Ontolog uh, had little to do, almost nothing to do with semantic equivalence. It was more the loose version of federation that you said, which is to get lots of disparate worldviews to talk to each other in meaningful ways. And the vehicle that we chose, that we're, that we're choosing, is uh, same subject. Yeah. Uh, and, and you nicely brought same subject up in your, in your data integration, which, which was very, very helpful. So, but we are not trying to solve the, 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 the uh, semantic equivalence problem. We are simply trying to bring disparate worldviews into communication. Yeah, so you're you're really looking at what I would call computer assisted rather than um, computer achieved integration. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah, and I and I, I by the way, I mean I think that all this is useful. Um, you know, uh, uh, and it's all about ste steps on the way. Um, there's some sense of full integration, which is a nirvana that it's useful to have on the horizon as the place that you're going towards. It's a destination. And there are all those, yes, it's, it's what you hope for as being the end destination. Um, uh, but there are all these useful places on the, on the road to that that each are, are capable of delivering benefits in their own right. And in looking at these approaches and the technology, um, it's about, uh, it, it's about matching, um, uh, uh, what what the technology provides with a particular business case for something that, that you want to achieve 
um, and on the whole taking the simplest technology that will achieve that although equally being aware of what's the next step down the road and I think that um, uh, I mean I think that uh, um, I mean I was involved uh, very briefly with Topic Maps about uh, I suppose it was about five years ago now in, in the development of Topic Maps so um, I was on the committee and I do recall that we had some interactions with okay them, I guess. yeah and um, so I'm, I'm but so that both dates what I know and uh, but, but also says yes this was this was something that clearly um, had a capability that I considered to be useful um, and, and it's it, it's Yes, sort of um, RDF-like uh, to, to, to relate it to the, uh, the stuff that's, that's uh, being, being touted as popular today. Okay, Both of you are here. Uh, let me ask, is, is the topic map uh, XTM standard ISO 13250 uh, also part of TC184 episode? No, it isn't. Is that why there's less sort of coupling between the two? Um, it could be. I, I mean, I think uh, the reality of standard is that um, people in different environments develop the standards they need. And if two groups are developing standards that, that have similar capabilities, um, then it's usually only after they finish developing them that you find out that they're both there. Certainly argues for large-scale federation as soon as we can get it. Yeah, and, and the, I mean a lot of work. Uh, these are things that are improving over time. So um, people no started noticing that this was starting to happen, um, and topic maps is one of the things that, that uh, is in that category. Um, and you know, I did actually get involved to some extent, but it was happening somewhere else. So I, I got involved enough to know what was happening. Um, and Shell has used topic maps. And obviously that's one key reason why we advocate communities of practice. Absolutely, yes. No, I, I get, uh, there is no substitute for uh, exchanging ideas um, amongst uh, uh, particularly thought leaders in, in different areas. Uh, and it's something that doesn't happen enough and it's hard to make time for. Well said. This was a great talk. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I'm glad we can uh, get finish early enough so that you can go to your next meeting. So, Thank you very much for is, is, is helping with that. No other uh, questions for Dr. West. Uh, let, on behalf of the community, let's thank uh, him for giving us this very brilliant talk. Here, here. Thank you. Thank you. If there are any further questions, uh, do feel free to ask them by email. That's, that's, that's absolutely fine. Oh, we were so hoping you would say that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much.